Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Meb. We have a Q&A episode. Jeff, welcome to the show. How's it going? We've had a great stream of really wonderful guests, and we have some pretty awesome ones booked coming up. So I'm going to start trying to intersperse a few more of these Q&As because I feel like the feedback questions are starting to pile up. So again, anyone send us questions, thoughts, uh, feedback at the Meb Faber Show. We'll answer them on air. What do you know, Jeff? Well, why don't you refresh us again on uh, where you've been traveling this time? You're always coming back from somewhere. Six states in six days. Started out in Kansas, checking out the farmland and viewed our wheat field that burned down that now has a burned down combine still on the land. And I don't really know how you get rid of that. You can't really tow it. No, I mean, that's got to be there just for, uh, there remi- reminding you it's of forever. It looks, oh, we'll put a picture on the, on the blog. It, it looks like a Mad Max sort of burned out machine kind of out of Star Wars. And so it was in Kansas, was pheasant hunting for second time I've ever done it in, uh, for the pheasant opening weekend, uh, which will be our, I guess our, our Christmas dinner meal, a couple pheasants and then stopped in Colorado, say hi to the family and then went to New York where we sat on a panel at the Evidence-Based Investing Conference, which uh, was put on by Josh Brown and Barry Ritholtz of Ritholtz Wealth Management. And actually, pretty fantastic conference, You know, mainly because of the people that were there, a lot of great speakers, really well done, had a fun happy hour at a bar afterwards, uh, but was on a panel with Wes, moderated by Michael Santoli, who... Interestingly enough, I met on my first day of my first job ever in New York City. He was interviewing my portfolio manager. I think he would have been at Barron's at the time. Uh, anyway, so it's fun to connect again after 16 years. Didn't I see you're going to uh, send out links to the various uh, speeches to your Idea Farm subscribers? If they're, if they're public, I will. I'm happy to. Some, sometimes they record them, sometimes they don't. Uh, we should probably record the speech and put it on online as a screencast somewhere anyway. But yeah, if, if they recorded them as they should, I'll, I'll find them and dig them up. And then did a speech at the CFA conference, which was a big CFA conference in New York on Thursday, and then down to Richmond uh, to give a talk. And then over, I stopped a night in Charlottesville, my old alma mater, Wahoo Wah, and then up to DC for a AAII speech in DC. And so four very, very different crowds, you know, the CFA, you have the Uber financial kind of analysts, and then the AI tends to be more of a retiree crowd. And then we had the CMT and CAIA in Richmond and, and then the evidence base. So it's huge diversity, um, but a lot of fun. And so finally catching up on my sleep now back in LA for pretty much the rest of the year. All right. Well, welcome back. Let's knock out some Q&A. So what, what, what happened when I was gone? Not much going on in the world, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> Great segue. We've actually gotten several listeners writing in or wanting to know what your thoughts are on Trump. I mean, there's a whole lot of hand wringing out there. And, you know, you have said in several blogs and tweets that I believe you think this is relatively inconsequential in the long term. But why don't you fill us in? You know, and we wrote a lot of articles on this leading up to the election. And one, I think, was called, what was it called? It was about something along the lines of what you're afraid of is probably not what you should be afraid of. But mm-hmm. talking about the election, everyone's worried about the election and, and what's going to happen. And we wrote the article and we'll link to it. But it was about asset allocation and then, you know, people being afraid of sharks and lions, but really they should be afraid of mosquitoes and then an asset allocation. People are afraid of what markets are doing, but what they should really be afraid of is or pay attention to is, is fees and taxes and other things like that. So we said that, you know, leading up to it, that the election was meaningless. However, I did correctly predict the election. If you remember, we talked about this many times on the blog, uh, podcast and blog and Twitter. We said the best indicator for who wins the election is simply the stock market up or down three months into the election. 85% accuracy that if the market is up three months into the election, the incumbent party stays in power. If the market is down, the opposition party takes over. And so we're writing about this and, and tweeting about it. I said, you know, if Hillary and the Democrats want to win, they better start buying S&P 500 futures because the market's down and this is forecasting a Trump win. Anyway, so even the night of, you know, when when it surprised a lot of people, we are in the market was kind of gyrating. We said, look, this is if you're a long term investor, this is meaningless. And I can't tell you how many people, how many conversations I had before the election where people said, I'm just going to wait, Meb. I know you have this awesome new investment service. I'm just going to wait after the election when things are more certain. And I tweeted this the day after and I said, well, <laughs> are you feeling certain now? And and that's the thing. If you, if you look back and in investing, there's always something to be afraid of. Six months ago, it was Zika. Before that, it was Brexit. Before that, it was you know a laundry list of things. I mean, you look back in history, the steady march up that UF stocks have done for the past 115 years almost 10% a year, 6.5% real, right? How many crazy things have we been through? Many, two world wars, Vietnam, Korea, Iraq, you know, all sorts of biological threats. And I mean, pick your poison, how many dozens or hundreds of terrible politicians and scandals and, and you know, terrorism events and everything else. And, and throughout that time, investments have continued to march on. And, and so it's one of the reasons we think it's so important to have not only an investment plan, but at this point, an automated solution. And I actually tweeted this out today. I said, you know, having implemented an automated solution for my own money, I cannot fathom going back to not doing it. I cannot think of a single reason why you'd go back to subjectively managing your money. All it does is gives you gasoline to pour on a like to to make mistakes with it's also sleepless nights when you take that burden onto your own shoulders it's it's far more stressful we talk a lot about you know we've published a book that says global asset allocation says basically your asset allocation is not that important as long as you have one and have a plan you know the the things that are important obviously we talked a lot paying too much in fees and taxes but also mucking around with it and so this sort of eliminates all of the behavioral bias. It doesn't eliminate all of them because you could still close down the account or fire, you know, but, but it eliminates a lot of the, the more choices you have, the more opportunities you have to muck something up, the higher percentage chance of you mucking it up. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, I mean, it's like if you have, if you're on a diet and you have a refrigerator full of cake and pantries full of Doritos and everything else, you know, why would you, why would you do that? But if you buy a bunch of fruits and vegetables, it makes it at least a little bit harder. So not having an automated solution is, is essentially incentivizing yourself to do something stupid. This also underscores the importance of being very allegiant to your strategy, you know, because if you have those uncertainties when the markets turn against you or whatnot and it rattles your convictions, well, you, you need to sort of be able to look back and say, all right, well, I believe in the fundamental you know, case for what I'm doing here. Here's, here's, an, here's another funny example too, though, is that, you know, we wrote, we tweeted before this, we said, you know, the most likely reaction to the election being over is that the market's going to rip into year end because everyone's so happy this blank show is, is over. You know, the, the, everyone's just happy this is done. We can move on. Um, but there was a lot of research reports that came out, including one I remember from Bridgewater, largest hedge fund in the world, that's like if Trump wins, all these global stock markets are going to go down 10% and gold's going to rip. <laughs> What's happened, right? Yeah. U.S. is hitting all-time highs. Gold went down. Exact opposite of what people expected. And so I have not seen a more universal opinion going into the election than if Trump wins, the market would go down. And when you get things that line up on that side, and and again, and, and this is a lesson for political forecasters too. I mean, how many times that night or the, the day prior did you see from all these media outlets, 95% chance Hillary winning? Yeah. 95% chance. I mean, that that's insane in my mind. And so, you know, when when you have these really outlier sort of beliefs where everyone's on the same side, that's when sentiment or you have these contrarian i mean contrarianism by definition doesn't work most of the time but it it really true extremes it it works phenomenally in my mind i mean we talk a lot about the aaii survey and we use this in our in our speeches where we say there's a survey going back to the 80s they ask people are you bullish neutral or bearish on stocks and we show the averages over time and it's stunningly i mean it's laughable you say the, the highest value for when people were most bullish on stocks was literally January 2000. The single worst month to be bullish on stocks, and this goes back to the 80s, in the entire sample. And the same is when were people most bearish on stocks? March of 2009. And so you start to get these kind of contrarian, and and this again, again, it goes to removing the emotions out of the equation and, and having automated solution. Obviously, we prefer the Cambria Digital Advisor for all the reasons outlined in the Trinity portfolio, as well as other papers. But I've publicly stated many times, I think a lot of the robo-advisors and digital solutions are fine. They're not ideal, not ideal for me for a lot of reasons. Buy and hold allocation, modern portfolio theory is probably better than 90% of what people have. But I, I don't think it's the best way to do it for you know market cap weighting, not enough in real assets, et cetera, et cetera. No trend following component. But anyway, that was a little long rant about the... Uh, about the election. All right. So short takeaway is obviously things are fine. Keep investing, keep to your system. Things are fine. And and my biggest rant too, and and this is, look, I'm pretty apolitical, but you see so many tweets about all the election was, was uh, influenced or, you know, this race or geography or gender or age group or whatever didn't show up or this state pushed the election or whatever. That's so full of BS. Over half the country, eligible voters in the country didn't vote. So the only thing that really, in my opinion, like is apathy. I mean, that's what decides the election every time. Half of the country didn't, over half the country didn't vote. Anyway, well, the good news is we, we still have Trump 
around to sponsor the podcast. If you remember, if you were in the early days of this podcast, Jeff solicited a few not too highly paid um, <laughs> artists to record uh, the disclosure. So we had both a Hillary and Trump recording. Uh, can we can we play the the Trump? Yeah, let me tee up Trump for you real quick. He took a little time out from his busy um, his his busy post post win to record this for us. So let's let's hear what we got. Welcome to the Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the graft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. That's so good. Have you noticed? Know we, so, we might get sued. We got to watch out. Yeah, that. Right. It sounds like he says the graft of investing, which is even funnier. Well, it could have. So, so it, for everybody who's listening out there, you know, we we got this guy off of a very low budget sort of site. He was trying to go through all these speeches to find the various words that we would need to create this welcome. And the I, best and, words. And I don't think he could find some of them. So he would try to cut up. Um, you know, multi-syllabic words. I wonder words. what he used for Meb. I don't know. Because it, it sounds like he says Meb. I don't know. I'm sure yeah, he cut something Maybe out. he did. Maybe he was like, you know, one day he's like, you know, I, I read this great blog, this investment writer. <laughs> Reasonably sure that's could've, not the Could have been talking about the marathoner, the Boston marathoner. Meb <laughs> Kiflagizi or whatever. All right, all right. Enough about that. Enough about uh, the election. Let's move on. So the first question we're going to get to is about uh, CAPE. But... I know from chatting with you earlier this morning that you actually are thinking about a new research paper, which I find fascinating to figure that uh, you might want to tip off the readers as to what you're going to find before we even get into this question. You know, I mean, I look, I've been writing about CAPE for a super long time. I got so weary of writing about CAPE that I wrote an article called Everything You know, Need to Know About CAPE that has about 40 hyperlinks to it. So we've said pretty much everything we need to say, but, but there can... Also, much like 13F investing, there's a few areas and dividends probably that there's such a profound misunderstanding that continues to propagate that I feel the responsibility to weigh in. You know, and so I was speaking at this conference in New York and the whole morning was uh, Aswath Damodaran, who I have enormous respect for. I read all of his blog posts. He's a professor from NYU, literally wrote the textbook on investing has an amazing blog called Musing on Markets that still looks like it's, I think he's on like the first version of, of Blogger. So it looks like it's been designed in 95 and I hope he doesn't change because it's the <laughs> best old school design. Anyway, even he wrote some articles and we'll link to them about CAPE that I thought were one, misleading, but but also not inaccurate, but but they come to the sort of the wrong conclusions. I don't know. And so, and so here, here I'll, I'll give you an example. And my buddy Barry, who I love to death, Barry Ritholtz, uses the same example. And, and I hear so many people say this. And they say, and Swedro might have even said this on the podcast too. I'm not sure. But they said basically, you know what? Cape has said that stocks have been expensive since the early 90s and stocks have gone up, you know, let's call it 700%. Therefore, Cape is a terrible indicator. And to me, that shows such a profound misunderstanding of valuation. So, for example, let's say you had a house that got it was you bought it a hundred thousand dollars, and just because it went to two hundred thousand dollars or three hundred five, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars, and someone bought it, doesn't mean that it was a good investment. Mm -hmm. First of all, so as a thought experiment, we said, you know what? Okay, look, 
Let's go back to the early 90s when Cape first got expensive. And you could pick a number out of a hat. I don't care which one it is. But we said when Cape goes above 20. And that's not even expensive when inflation's tame. I think when inflation is 1% to 4%, Cape average is around 20, 21. When it's the full series, it's around 16, 17. So we said, all right, let's say that you go back to the early 90s, you get out of stocks when they're expensive, all right? Or let me back up. Let me back up. First of all, you want to compare this to the the alternative asset, which is simply bonds, risk free asset, right? So you got T bills, you got ten year bonds, thirty year bonds. So we said, all right, let's let's say you instead of this seven hundred percent gain you had in stocks, which equates to nine percent a year, let's say you just invested in bonds, which is the alternative, right? Bonds did about six percent a year, so underperformed stocks by about three hundred basis points. Pretty big difference. However, they had half the volatility. And the big difference about expensive markets, and we've showed this, others have shown it, James Montier, GMO, the guys at Star Capital out of Germany have showed that the more you invest, uh, when when markets are more expensive, the higher chance you have of a very large future drawdown. So stocks, by the way, had those two huge bear markets in the 2000s. And you got to factor in that behavioral aspect, because anybody talking about what the returns are conveniently kind of forgets that's very hard to remain invested when you're down 50%. Right. So stocks, 9% return. 15% 15% vol, two, uh, 50, essentially 50% drawdown, and a, and a sharp ratio of around 0.4, 0.44. And historically, asset classes gravitate to sharp ratios around 0.2 to 0.3, just, just for comparison. Bonds did 6% a year, half the vol, so around 7.5. The biggest drawdown was only 10%, so already one-fifth or one-quarter of, one-fifth of the stock drawdown. And the sharp ratio was actually higher. Than stock sharp ratio. And so the risk adjusted returns are essentially better. Then if you said 30 year bonds, you actually get up to 8% return. The vol still lower than stocks. Sharp ratio is close 0.41. And you had half the drawdown of stocks. So if you had sat in bonds and said, you know what, I'm not going to play the stock game, I'm going to sit in long term bonds, you had essentially the same return, similar vol, similar sharp, one half the drawdown. So that's one right there. So people say people always think that in valuation or stocks that it's either you're in stocks, you're out, but they, they always forget that you have to do something with that money. You can't just put it under a mattress. So then a lot of people try to do timing models, right? And I hate this criticism because a lot of people say, I can't find a way to use CAPE, so therefore, it's not a good indicator. And substitute any indicator for CAPE, moving averages, I don't care what. And my response is always, look, just because you can't find a way to use it doesn't mean someone can't. And we've written about half a dozen articles about using CAPE as a timing mechanism that shows that it works just great. And so here's an example. And I picked these numbers out of a hat. And we actually published a similar article on this a couple years ago. I said, look, tell you what, let's sit out of stocks when they're above 20 and we'll sit in bonds. Otherwise, we'll invest in stocks. The most simple trading system of all time trades like once a decade. So had you done that, remember 9% return in stocks, 10 year bonds were six. So if you switched into 10 year bonds, you improve your returns over the 10 year to another percent and a half, still have half the drawdown of stocks. If you switch into 30 year bonds, you beat the S&P 500 because you would have been in 30 bonds for the majority of the period. When 2008, 2009 happens, you get invested in stocks, hold them for maybe a year till they get expensive again, and then exit. So you beat, you beat the S&P 500 by a percent a year, lower volatility, higher sharp ratio, 
half the drawdown. So right there, I just gave you a switching mechanism that works just fine. However, that's not the takeaway. And again, this entire exercise in my mind is asking the wrong question because we don't just exist in a world of you have, no one has ever asked you, all right, here's your opportunity set. Do you want US stocks or nothing, right? <laughs> you don't have to wake up every morning and say, all right, I either got to buy stocks or nothing. So right there, we showed that an alternative of bonds just is fine. And if you had a switching system, it did just fine. But again, no one is asking you, do you want to invest just in stocks or US stocks or bonds? The world is your oyster. You can invest in Kendri Ken Griffey Jr. baseball cards. You could go invest in, you know, microcap startups on AngelList. You could do all these things with your money. You could light it on fire, whatever you want. So we said, look, the whole point of CAPE ratio is valuation. And again, we even say CAPE ratio is meaningless. You can use dividends, price to book, price cash flow. We publish four variants of the cyclically adjusted measures on the idea farm. I think we do CAPE, cyclically adjusted cash flows, book, and one other. Maybe it's sales. I can't remember. Anyway, but my point is just simply valuation. So if you take a step back and say, you know what? I'm not just going to say on a binary basis, is it best to invest in stocks or bonds in the US? Where's the best opportunity in the world? So then we say, well, instead of investing just in US stocks, what if we pick the cheapest quartile of global stock markets? How would that compare? You know, so you went and you took a step back and say, all right, I'm going to invest wherever my money is treated best. What are the cheapest markets in the world? So you go from that 9% stock return with 50% drawdown to 14% a year stock return since 93, a little higher volatility, a higher sharp ratio, and a lower drawdown. So all of a sudden you add 400 basis points of return. So that 700 odd percent return from the S&P 500 is now 2000, over 2,000%. And so it dwarfs the choices of just stocks or bonds because it's the wrong question in my mind. Anyway, so we're going to write an article about it, maybe, maybe a paper. Hopefully, we'll try to keep it short. But it's I grow so weary of this conversation. This, is, this may be the last time we discuss it. I'll just be, and by the way, the zero, there's zero chance this is the last time we discuss it. By the way, this strategy is having a monster <laughs> year, finally. It, uh, so global CAPE ratios, having great ratio, uh, great year this year. It actually had a good year last year where the cheap markets outperformed the expensive. It was just that the U.S. was one of the best performers. It was 2014 was the stinker. But in general, uh, most strategies will have, you know, even if it's a good strategy, three out of 10 years underperform, you know, on average, or that are pretty bad. So, uh, but it's good. It's good to see because the Cape, cheapest Cape ratio bucket around the world is averaging around 10 versus 23 for the most expensive. So it's half the, half the valuation. And, and again, we've said this and it's, I think of utmost importance is that it's not just about buying the cheap. And so we're all, all this discussion, discussion was talking about buying the cheapest, it's also about avoiding the most expensive too. So you avoid the things like the US in the late 90s when it was trading CAPE ratios of 45. You avoid India and China when they were trading in the 40s and 60s in the mid 2000s, et cetera, et cetera. The good news is most of the world is pretty reasonable right now and the cheap stuff is, is really cheap. Okay. Well, thanks for the preview. Let's move on to the That was a long questions. preview. Man, that might have been the conclusion and the summary. Maybe we never do a paper. We just say, just go, go listen to the podcast. Dylan. All right, so uh, can you talk about whether using CAPE as a valuation metric for a stock index still works when the composition of the index is changing or if there is significant dilution? Composition of the index is always changing. So, you know, the S&P 500 right now is not a bunch of railroads and buggy whip companies from the 20s. So that's the whole point of a market cap index. 
but I think if you reframe the question to is CAPE representative of is is the ten year um, earnings representative of the basket of stocks you're trading now? So the the anonymous blogger Jesse Livermore over at Philosophical Economics has written about this, and we'll link to a couple of his posts, but. It is totally representative as long as the market is big enough. The places you run into trouble, and it's and it's not necessarily really trouble, but it becomes a little more challenging is when you get to the really small emerging markets or frontier markets. So these these indexes that only have say ten stocks in them, because if a couple of those stocks move or go out of business or bankrupt and you replace them with other ones, it's it's a highly different universe. Whereas in the U.S., you have three four thousand stocks that comprise the index. It's not going to matter as much, but for for Czech Republic or Greece or Egypt, it does. And so for 42 of the 45 countries, it doesn't really matter. For a few of them, it does. And when it does, and so we talk about Greece a lot where we say, look, depending on the actual basket that you use for Greece, its CAPE ratio is either 2 or like negative 30. And the, the biggest importance there is the basket that you're trading reflects the basket you're measuring, so, for example, if you say, hey, I'm going to, you know, do, and the same thing applies, I'm going to do CAPE ratio for biotech stocks, and I'm only going to pick 10. Well, you pick 10 healthcare stocks versus 10 biotech, it's two very different things. And so you always have to measure and then trade what, you always have to trade what you're measuring. And I, you actually just sort of answered a different question. Let me jump down and see if I, phrasing it exactly how he asked, if you feel you already directly answered it. What do you think of investing in frontier markets? Are they suitable markets to apply long-term valuation measures such as CAPE? And do you feel that the 10-month uh, SMA timing model could also work effectively with frontier models? I think the 10-month SMA works on basically everything. You know, there's not much that it doesn't work on. The only things it really doesn't work that great on is super low vol instruments like 10-year bonds or, or bills. But I think any volatile instrument, trend following is, is a wonderful way to, to invest. Two is that does using valuation work in a lot of these markets? I think so. But again, if you're dealing with very small markets, I mean, Greece, I, and I tweeted as I can't remember at this point, but if you put Greece's entire market treated as a stock in the S&P 500, it's like the 300th biggest stock or something to put that into perspective, right? A lot of these frontier markets, Argentina, Nigeria, or Morocco are even smaller. And so you just got to be careful that what you're looking at is representative. And, you know, we don't look at stocks down below 200 million market cap. And, and the same as in the US, you know, if you're trading these $10 million market cap companies, hugely volatile and valuation, I think still works. But, you know, transaction costs become more important. And uh, they can be super volatile. So yes, I do. I think valuation still works in emerging markets, uh, frontier markets, of course. We don't trade them mainly for liquidity issues because a lot of our funds, you know, need to be able to scale into the billions. And so frontier markets, you would be. But but again, going back to Cape, this is something you should only look at once a year, once every two years for valuation purposes because it takes a long time for these to play out. A, a good question though is I, I we haven't looked at we don't track the. Cape for a lot of these frontier markets anymore, but maybe we'll add that to the idea farm. I think Argentina, Argentina was so low for forever. We'll, we'll, we'll add it to the list of things to do. Would you take like a smaller position size in those if you're going to invest, given how mercurial well, if you buy the be? market cap index, you know, remember, you're going to own frontier markets no matter what. So if you go, as my favorite example is you go buy the Vanguard global bond index, you end up with bonds from Iraq and 
Kazakhstan and everywhere else because they're a tiny part of the global index, but it's a tiny part. It's so going to concentrate though. I mean, emerging markets are what you know. I mean, they're like half of global GDP, but only what fifteen percent of the market cap of the world. So, and that's just emerging. Frontier is probably what I don't know, two, five. So, you know, e- even if you, it's, it's a rounding error. Is my point. Uh, all right. Well, back to uh, non-frontier capes. You often mention value filters, in particular, taking average ranking uh, rankings across a number of metrics like price to book, PE, cash flow. How do you rank metrics which can become negative? For example, a PE can be negative due to negative earnings. Uh, it can also be tricky when earnings are very low, close to zero, making the PE very high. Any comments? So or ideas? you. you- the way to think about it, so valuation composite is meaning you're not relying on just one metric. And so the, what some of the reasons to do that is either there's a structural reason, reason. So like Australia has structural reasons why their companies have higher dividend yields. The, the government uh, tax incentivizes companies to do that. So is it more accurate to use a number of valuation metrics? And I think all of the literature shows that it, it is. You know, the O'Shaughnessy's have done a ton of research here. Many people have. And so we use a composite in essentially all of our funds. Use one metric and you can have a very biased picture of the world. When you think about the ranking, so let's say you're ranking the 22 countries in the developed universe and you rank them on price to books. You rank them all 1 to 22. And then you rank them on price sales, price cash flow. Uh, so like the question of negative ones. So for price to earnings, if you had negative, I would just add it to the end of the most expensive but it's it's going to end so greece is a good example because even though you use the negative cape ratio and it ends up being last essentially it's still one of the cheapest on the other three so it ends up still in the basket of cheap countries it would have to fall out on all those which is why i use it again because if you otherwise you would i mean it's and this is what drives so many people crazy that think about valuation even on the US stock market that love to use one year pe ratios well, look what happened in 0809 i mean the one year pe ratio went bananas like it was insane you could never use that for a useful determination of anything mm-hmm. so uh you know one of the benefits also of using the 10 year metrics is they average out they tend to be slower moving and also a, a big improvement is they reduce turnover uh, hopping to trend here, besides trend following, uh, do you have any belief in any other alternative strategies like long, short, diversified, ARB, global macro, market neutral, etc.? Or has your research shown that trend strategies seem to be the only alt strategy to be worth in addition to a traditional portfolio of global stocks, bonds, real assets? I mean, trend's my favorite. You know, we we often talk about there's a lot of research for trend. It's psychologically fits well with me. There's plenty of strategies that I think work just fine, but you have to take a step back and deconstruct those strategies. And so whether it's merger ARB or convertible ARB, a lot of them end up looking like just beta from other asset classes. Here's an example. So let's say convertible bonds. I mean, that's not really a strategy, but it's an asset class. So people say, well, convertible bonds, we'll say, well, that's basically just a mix of stocks and bonds. And that's, you end up looking, it's just not really like a unique asset class as much as a mix of two others. So a lot of strategies can be just just deconstructed into, this is just basically a mix of stocks and bonds or stocks and cash or leverage and stocks, et cetera. And so the the challenge, of course, is that either, either it's a systematic process 
So there's plenty that I think systematically, as, as long as you pay at low cost, are wonderful strategies. And you also have to pay attention to taxes because most hedge funds and all strategies are completely run with any without any regards to tax consequences. And so hedge funds are notoriously tax inefficient. But I think there's plenty that that would work great. And uh, but but it, again, it, it just depends on the exact strategy and what they're doing. And my belief is that most of them can be just deconstructed into systematic rules-based strategies. Trend following is one. Managed futures is one where you can pay a low cost and access that strategy. And we were saying at this evidence-based conference, I said, the beauty of that asset class is that, and what's so funny about the investing world is you take a step back and you were to blind the investment returns from different asset classes and strategies and hand it to an optimizer, most optimizers would put you like half in trend following strategies. And no one does that because it looks too different and they're going to, they're going to, you know, it's career risk. But in general, trend following is one of historically one of the best, not only absolute returners, but also diversifiers as well. So there's, yes, is there fits for other ones, whether it's cat bond, catastrophe bonds. I wish that was a tradable asset class that we could invest in, you know, a a number of those like all sort of lending platforms and everything else. Yeah, I think that'd be great. But and this is why we've often said there needs to be someone out there writing a a newsletter focusing on liquid alt strategies because there's so many and there and often it's just an excuse to charge too much. I wonder if you studied those over a long long time frame such as what you did with your book about looking at different uh, asset allocations and what you found looking at L area and whatnot over the, the since was it 73 Yep. You know, they're all sort of clustering together, and then you tack on fees, it makes a huge difference. So if you look at all these various investment strategies, whether it's trend, whether it's any of the other alt strategies listed here, if you took them back three, four, five decades, and you were faithful to them and let them do their thing and didn't trade out of them, would would they cluster in the same area? you got to group them into the categories. I mean, like we often say that saying hedge funds or alt strategies is like saying dog. You know, I mean, that there's... A Great Dane looks nothing like a Chihuahua, which looks nothing like a Bulldog. So Global Macro looks nothing like Long Short Equity, which looks nothing like Short Focused. And so, you know, if Short Focused, for example, should never have a positive return premium. You know, it's going to lose money every year, but it's an insurance style strategy for the most point. And it's a question of, you know, how little you lose. But, you know, a number of them, it's going to suffer from the same problems as active management. I think Wes and I were talking about this on the panel where he said, most of the academic literature shows that hedge funds and CTAs on a gross basis do generate alpha. The problem is they take all of it in fees. And so 2 and 20, I, you you leave your such, such a slim margin for capturing any of that alpha. The good news is a lot of these are now launching as ETFs and low-cost mutual funds for 50 basis points. And that gives you a chance, at least gives you a chance. 2 and 20... I, I think that historical research, I mean, we we wrote an article about this back in 2008. It might have been 2007, where we looked at the hedge fund research indexes. So compared the investable versus the non-investable. The non-investable already has not very good returns. The investable version underperforms that by four percentage points per year. So, you know, on on average, the beta or the broad hedge fund space is a horrible place to invest. And don't even get me started on Goldman's new 13F VIP tracker. I mean, to me, that is a fund that is a wonderful candidate to short and invest in the most 
the most popular names across the hedge fund universe, which is the exact opposite of anything you would popular ever want. What? It's uh, in uh, the long short equity names that invest in the most popular stocks. Which, if you use a database of just by market cap, non survive no what hedge what hedge funds own the most right right and so if if fifty hedge fund if one hundred and fifty hedge funds all own Apple then that'd be the biggest holding for example. And all that does is buys you a basket of crowded hedge fund trades, which is then going to... And first of all, the broad hedge fund landscape, you don't want the beta of hedge funds. You want the alphas. You want the names that look different. You want the unique names from great managers. So clearly they didn't list, read my book. I'll send it to them if they want a free copy. But but yeah, I mean, that. I mean, and, and now knowing Goldman, who's, who's Goldman, there's a good chance they launched this for the pure intention of their clients to short the fund. Where they're like, hey, this is going to be a basket that you can that some morons will buy, but then other people you can use it as a basket to short. So it's a vehicle where you could go short the crowded hedge fund trades, and that's probably a great. We used to joke. We said, look, we were going to file for this fund, except it was we had a ticker. It was CRWD. It was going to be crowd, but we were going to do it as an inverse fund where we shorted the most popular names. Still do it. I know we should, right? <laughs> That's a great idea. The only holding would be the uh, the Goldman VIP, <laughs> just one holding, and it's short that. I think it might fail the diversification test, but I love that over there. there. <laughs> All right, moving on here. Can you and Jeff please settle the truth about putting up with terrifying drawdowns versus the new commonly newsletter touted use of trailing stops? If you use trailing stops of twenty five percent. You minimize drawdowns, but get rid of potentially awesome recoveries. What does the backtesting research say about the efficacy of each practice? You know, so we talk a lot about drawdowns, obviously, but also taking risk. And we referenced a Bernstein comment, and and Buffett has said something similar in a a prior podcast where we said, look, you kind of got to put people in two different groups. And the one group is people that have enough assets or are wealthy or have enough to live on. In my mind, like you know, Bernstein said it, look, you've already won the game. And Buffett has said, look, you already have assets. You don't need to risk those assets. And I think the biggest mistake wealthy investors make is they put too much of their livelihood at risk. You know, people that worry about drawdowns in that group is simply have a lot more in cash and short-term safe investments. One. Two, if you're a younger person or if you're someone who's looking to build their wealth, et cetera, you know, obviously we love trend following as a way to hopefully eliminate the far left tail of losing one in any one position, but also in an asset class, 50, 80, 90, 100%. It doesn't matter if it's Bitcoin or if it's a stock or if it's, you know, look at all those people that had Enron jobs and then put their own money into the Enron stock and their retirement portfolios. You know, you may lose 20, 25% from the peak by having a trailing stop or using a trend following exit. But the good news is you didn't lose 100%. And so I think I don't really care how you implement it as an investor, but there's plenty of ways to use sort of these trend following or, or trailing stop exits that I think has a large psychological benefit. Because the worst thing you do is take yourself out of the game and go broke, you know, ride something all the way down to zero. And you know, it, it even I, I just I, I I'm a firm believer and in, in positive on it. But you know, if you're a buy and hold investor, look, that's a perfectly reasonable system. But historically, buy and hold investing 
has had very large drawdowns. To what degree would you try to factor in the relative volatility and or drawdown size of individual asset classes into your system? Because clearly you can't apply you know, the same variance on commodities as equities or whatnot. I mean, in terms of what you do, how, yeah, how detailed does it get? I mean, you know, if you use a moving average, it's going to automatically sort of adjust. Uh, but, if, but if you're referencing, say, a trailing stop, you know, there's a lot of ways to vol adjust that. You know, our buddy Richard Smith at Trailing Stops has one that vol adjusts, I think. Uh, I think it's trailingstops.com yeah. or trade stops, excuse me, trade stops. But so, yes, so for a low vol stock versus a high vol biotech or whatever, should you have a different trailing stop? Probably, you know, whether one may be 10 or 15%, one may be 40. I don't know. But, but, you know, trend followers in the CTAs have been writing about this for 40 years, you know, where, where, you say the market like corn doesn't have the same volatility as a market like the S&P 500, which doesn't have the same volatility as, you know, soybeans, whatever it may be. And so vol adjusting it. Now, you know, how do people actually end up implementing that in their portfolio? They do it different ways. A lot of people don't scientifically really do it. And even if you look at institutional portfolios, and this is what all the risk parity guys do, right? Where they say, all right, 60-40 portfolio, U.S. stocks and bonds, isn't, it's 60-40 dollar weighted, but risk weighted, it's 90-10 stocks, bonds. So therefore, you should have 60% in stocks, but 120% in bonds. So to equal, equal out the, or, or you have 10% in stocks and 90% in bonds. So there's a lot of different ways to do it to skin the cat and I don't really care which one, but I, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm psychologically predisposed to trend following and and trading. We we wrote some fun articles on Bitcoin back when it was going parabolic a few years ago and everyone cared about it. Do you, do you know anyone that uses Bitcoin by the way? I know a couple of people. I don't know anyone that uses it. I tried to use it a few times. I had it as a subscription option on the idea farm and no one ever chose it. So I got rid of it. It's kind of a shame. I, I was I was cheering for it. I was I kind of like the ideas, but I'm convinced only criminals and Chinese people trying to get money out of their country are using it. Well, side note, I mean, I'm curious about this. I haven't talked to you about it personally yet. What do you think about this whole war on cash thing we're seeing intensify right now? I mean, India just getting rid of some of their uh, very low denomination notes. Okay, so do you mean... Because I think your comment means a couple of different things. Because a lot of people interpret that Here's, as the Fed's low interest rate environment no, 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 as the no. war on I'm, cash and savings. I am I'm wondering about a literal taking away physical currency. Well, the problem the problem that I have that's different than most is, I mean, to me, using credit cards is easy. You know, I was talking to my buddy Steve Sugarud at this conference in New York, and we'll get him on the podcast. But he talks a lot about mobile payments, and he's like, "Man, I just got back from China. Everyone uses their phone to pay for everything." And I said, you know, that's cool, but like to me, credit cards work just fine. I don't know, and you know, but granted, maybe fifty years ago or thirty years ago, I would have said checks, writing checks works just fine. I'm more concerned though about if there is no paper currency, uh, everything's tied up in the banking system. And you've given away control over your. Well, but you got to remember the. I mean, your dollar is still tied up in the banking system you know it's it's worth is tied up in sure. the entire system right, yeah but if, if it's going to explode that way you know all hell's going to be speaking of the system here's right. a really funny aside so i was driving to kansas and long story short i i couldn't pick up my guns at my brother's house 
So we were a shotgun short. So I tried to buy a shotgun in Colorado and I got rejected. And smart guy. Yeah, no, I because I have three felonies. No, just kidding. It's because the guy passes me a note, didn't say it because it's probably on video, but he's like, You're California and Colorado have some sort of California has some sort of rule where you can't you can't buy a gun in Colorado or something, right? And so then my Canadian buddy is is was allowed to buy it. I mean, how ridiculous <laughs> is that? Anyway, what are we talking about? Sounds like you weren't very concerned about the war in cash. We just went on from guns <laughs> to Bitcoin. Uh, you know, I mean, to me, I don't know. I, I other than collectible, I don't, I don't, I don't really have any strong preference. Well, I mean, there's sort of a there's the obvious economy, then there's sort of a black market economy. If everything, if there's no more cash. And everything is not taxable. Everything is sort of known and in the light, as far as the government's concerned. Uh, and I think that's their claim. Oh, really? You think Bitcoin? I mean, I, I, used, to but joke, no, I, I used to heard, joke. though, there, there's, you know, there's speculation on how the Fed would have to potentially eliminate all alternative currencies like that. There's, there's, there's a great, if you haven't read the Silk Road story, I think it came out in Wired. We'll, we'll link to it. I, there's already a movie in the works. It's one of the most, it's one of the most phenomenally interesting and insane stories I've ever read. Have you read it? No. About the guy that started Silk Road that eventually got caught. I mean, Silk Road was the black market where you could go on there and buy anything. Drugs, illegal, like hits to kill people. Um, and everyone paid in Bitcoin. So I used to joke early in the days, I was like, it's going to be really funny when we find out that the CIA invented Bitcoin as a means to simply infiltrate and track and, and prosecute criminals and, and terrorists, right? But this guy that did Silk Road was this this little coder in San Francisco that worked out of a coffee shop and made he was making like 40 million a month or something and but was like ordering hits on people and stuff. And they eventually caught him because he was working on his laptop in a library or at a coffee shop. It is a ridiculous story, but anyway, you know, Charlie, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle. Charlie Munger calls Bitcoin rat poison. So <laughs> I, I just, I don't see it's necessary, but you know, currencies, people always forget about currencies. It's trust that backs them, you know, so it's the government's ability to tax, but also it's the military behind it to enforce it. So, you know, we'll, we'll probably see some alt currencies that make sense in the coming years. I, I don't think it's Bitcoin. All right, moving on back to bonds here. How do you practically implement the strategy laid out in your finding yield in a 2% world paper? Let's say you wanted to buy 10-year bonds of the top 10 yielding countries taken from the Trading Economics website. Do you hold them to maturity? Do you hold them for one year, then replace uh, your holdings with the updated top 10 yielding countries? Uh, where do you go if there are no 10-year bonds available? All right, that last question is amazing. What do you mean you don't? where you go if there's no 10-year bonds available? Um, <laughs> The world just stops issuing bonds. Uh, first of all, you just buy our ETF. That's what I would do. It makes life simple. As an individual, I don't think you can go out and buy a basket. I mean, unless you have fifty million or something. Like, where, where are you going to? You can't probably go buy a basket of these uh, government bonds. There used to be. What is that website's name? Is it EverBank? There's a couple websites. The is it EverBank? Uh, that lets you Everbank, invest yeah. your your balance and cash in. Any global currency deposits. I think it's ever sounds bank. like ever but it, it's going to probably be short term bills. But in some of those countries, it's 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 carry, but at a lower 
lower carry than 10-year bonds. You just buy our fund. I mean, there's a handful of ETFs. It looks an awful lot like an emerging market fund currently because most of the higher yielders are in emerging markets, which ironically, most of the cheap global stock markets, there's a lot of developed in there, largely due to Europe, who continues to struggle and act like they want to fall into the Atlantic, but but eventually they'll I think they'll come around. Um yeah, I mean I, I don't know why you'd ever bother in owning the bonds yourself unless you're a large family office or or hedge fund. Okay. You mentioned O'Shaughnessy earlier. Uh here's an interesting one based on that. James O'Shaughnessy's What Works on a Wall Street book. In it, he describes several composite value screens that show impressive back-tested performance. For instance, the trending value portfolio averaged around 22% over the last several decades. Seems too good to be true. Do you have any insight on using a screen like O'Shaughnessy has described? I'm assuming if it works so well, everybody would be doing it, which would then cause it not to work. Well, everyone it, everyone is starting to do it. By the way, I, I had a. I think he was having a glass of wine. I was having a victory prima which is one of my favorite beers but but jim and patrick were both at the the conference speaking yeah i mean that's one of the things so look the the multi-factor approach i mean part of it part of the problem of him publishing that book and and all the research since is that that is a factors and in, in equities is a strategy that can get chipped away the the alpha because everyone's so if you go type in a stock name that would show up on a multi-factor screen and you're going to see O'Shaughnessy, LSV, AQR, all of the quant shops own it. And because they all, they all have the same PhDs, they all have the same data sets. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means the alpha, I think, is going to be lower. Interestingly enough, post-Trump, those stocks, which are the good stocks, I mean, you, I can think of plenty of worse ways to invest, have absolutely just had a face ripper. They've gone straight up. Which is good to see because you know our shareholder yield strategies are very similar. I mean that is a value composite that has very high correlations to high cash flow, price to cash flow. So that style of strategy is has worked very well, and, and I think it's poised to do very well going forward because a lot of those value, a lot of those multi-factor strategies use value, and value hasn't done that great in the last handful of years. It reminds me of. Uh podcast with Arnott talking about the uh, relative valuation, some of some of these smart beta factors. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the flows change factors. We've been talking about it on dividends till we're blue in the face. I think I said at the conference that, look, if you still invest based just on dividends alone, you're a moron, which might be a little dramatic because there's, again, there's worse things to do like buying really expensive stocks, but it's one of the most nonsensical strategies I can think of. So yes, I think multi-factor strategy is is totally fine. Okay, uh, we'll start winding it down here pretty soon. But this is an interesting question. I don't believe we've gotten before. Figure it'd be good to get your thoughts on it and see if I can narrow it down here, kind of get to the meat. He basically says there's a guy who's looking to do his own back testing. Uh, he's curious about looking at historical numbers. And after listening to the Crittenden interview where you guys talked about survivorship bias and how it invalidated the results. He's asking about tips on how to do his own back test and what the caveats are, what to avoid. Well, start with Jim's book. Jim's, I mean, that what works on wall street is a great treatsy on how to do it. You know, two, try to find a local business school. A lot of those have access to a lot of the, the software that's helpful. We did a few posts called something along the lines of free data sources that list a lot of places where you can get free data Unfortunately, a lot of it's expensive, but there's many 
subscriptions and websites you can get access to through local business schools. But then it's a question of what are you looking to test? So on one end, it could be index level trend following strategies, in which case you can get a lot of the data free. On the other end, it's stock factor based. And that's a lot harder. So to do the really back to the 60s, which is the modern era of factor based kind of the databases being legit, you know, you're going to have to have fact set, which costs like 70 grand a year. But there's a handful now to where you can do it for maybe a decade or two. We used to portfolio one, two, three. There's another one called Bloodhound. Again, and even some of those in the early days were survivor bias or they forgot that like one, I think portfolio one, two, three in the early days didn't include dividends, which is, you know, you just invalidates everything. Zach's used to have a survivor bias database, which I was like, how can you, it's, you can't even, I was joking with someone the other day because people, someone sent me a series. They're like, here's the series net of dividends or no dividends. And I was like, well, can you send it to me with no price changes either? You know, I was like, what's the point? I mean, it's, it's totally useless information. So you got to be really careful and ask the right questions. Otherwise you come up with stuff that just is, is totally nonsensical. So it, it's, it's not an easy path and there's no, e- and so like another example, let's say you want to go test a managed future system. I mean, that's even more complex because all of a sudden you have 50 markets around the world that trade on different exchanges and have, you have to roll the futures. It's seemingly sample, seemingly simple sounding question, but it's, it's, it gets complex pretty quick. Okay. There, there's one last question here that's basically asking about keeping a percentage of your wealth in cash right now and, and how that ties into opportunity cost. I think, frankly, the, the short answer of what he's asked is kind of it's relative to your own financial situation. But it has me th- wanting to ask you a question about inflation because that's one of the issues he references in the question. You know, I've heard a lot or I've read a lot recently about how you know, Trump's policies might be stirring up inflation. We could be sitting here at the cusp of it right now. Do you have any thoughts on that? And, you know, what are your thoughts on, I mean, I guess we're still so historically low or inflation is so low right now that even if it does tick up, that actually could be positive for things. I, or, I think we've been, we've been hearing, we've been sitting on the cusp of major inflation for about 20, ever since inflation was tamed, <laughs> the last 20 years we've been hearing. You know, ever since Japan is, is an interesting example you know, ever since their bond yield went below 2%, it hasn't gone back above. I don't see, I mean, you have to at least fathom a universe where we sit at these low interest rates for a decade or they go back up. You know, I, I, I don't know. You have to plan for both. I have no problem with cash. In fact, I think most investors have far too little cash. They take way too much risk. And so cash, I mean, and when I say cash, I don't mean deposit sitting on your mattress. I mean, at least earning short-term bond yields. So we talk about it where, you know, we talked about max my interest, where instead of your money sitting Bank of America earning zero, you could have it rotate and be protected up to the, what is it, 250 grand, I think. And so it'll put it in various bank accounts at different accounts that earn a percent. So right there, you found a percent that you didn't have before in cash or short-term CDs or munis, whatever it may be. I have no problem with cash because here's here's an example I gave of this AAI I said, look, let's say you're doing a buy and hold asset allocation. And we just gave the example where we said all these allocations cluster within one percentage point over time, et cetera, yada, yada. And you do whatever it was. Let's call it 5% real over, over the last 30 years. Said, Are you going to notice the difference? So if you, if you look at the optimizers and you take the surveys and 
you look over 50 years, you know, the, the compounding chart will say, whoa, if you compounded it 10% versus 7%, you ended up with 20 million instead of only 2 million, whatever it may be. And again, what they neglect to show is you had to sit through two, three, four really large drawdowns to do it. And most people don't. So the beauty of cash is, and I tell people, I said, look, are you going to notice the difference between 5% real and 4% or even 5% and 3%? Yeah, you may notice it 30 years, 40 years from now if you make it that far. But the question is, will you notice the difference between 5% and zero and zero being the case where you sold at the bottom and never invested again because you couldn't take losing half your money? And how many people did that in 2008, 2009? How many people at the beginning of the podcast said, I'm just going to wait until the after the election and never invest? Or in 2008, they pulled their money out. And I, I have talked to so many investors that sold at the bottom in 08, 09 and have yet to reinvest. Mm. You know, they said, I, I'm just waiting to get back in. I'm just waiting to get back in when things go down. So it's, and going back to the whole point of the systematic investing process is, I, I don't see why there's any other way, why anyone would ever do it opposite. But remember when we had Porter on, and Porter had his, has a huge chunk in cash. I think it's totally reasonable. But I, you know, again, I think you should put it in short-term, interest-bearing investments that are protected, et cetera. Don't just, don't just put it in a, in a suitcase. But it, it gives a massive psychological benefit of never being all in. So many people have this desire to be all in stocks or all out. And in reality, you know, if, if the market goes down and this goes back to how to start investing too, where people will say, okay, Meb, they'll come in here and they say, all right, well, I'm going to get to work. Do I put it all in now or should I, you know, wait a month or how should I do it? And I say, look, I don't care. The math says, I mean, it has a positive, if, if markets in these portfolios have positive expected returns, math says, you should put all of it in now. And that's our default. However, I'm totally cool because I understand psychological hindsight that if you put it on now and a month later the market goes down and you're pulling your hair out and gnashing your teeth saying, oh my God, I should have waited a month. I was so stupid or whatever. Then, hey, dollar cost average over the next five years. I don't care. Whatever eliminates that hindsight bias is totally reasonable. So there's a lot of irrational choices that are actually more reasonable. They're actually more rational than the irrational choice if you simply, if it helps you to stick to your plan. Yeah. That's like a Rumsfeldian quote there. <laughs> like the word Rumsfeldian. Rumsfeldian. What was it? Like all the known unknowns, known knowns, unknown unknowns. Yeah. All right. That's it for now. Let's wrap it up. It's been a while. Uh, take us out here. Well, cool. Look, um, everyone have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I'll be here in LA. Uh, we got some really fun guests coming up. I think Mark Yusko will be next on the podcast and then Christmas time. So send us any suggestions you have, any guests you want to hear, any feedback for the post, send it to, or for the podcast, excuse me, send it to feedback at themebfabershow.com and Jeff will write them up and ask questions for the next Q and A. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher. If you're enjoying the show, hey, it's, it's the holiday time. Please go leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.